Hello and welcome to the Women Inspire podcast with me, Laura Adams. This is the podcast that inspires us by shining a spotlight on remarkable women past and present. Women whose achievements have perhaps gone unrecognised or been forgotten, but whose stories are crying out to be told. Our inspirational figure today was in turn a political reformer, women's rights activist, theosophist, orator and socialist. She was a woman of passion, drive and determination, who led a long and exceptional life and whose influence spanned continents. In Britain, she is perhaps most well known for leading the Match Girl strike of 1888, whilst in India, streets and buildings named after her reveal her role as first woman president of the Indian National Congress. It defies belief that this woman is not better known, but today we celebrate Annie Besant and chart a life in which through courage and a lifelong dedication to truth, she was able to carve her own path and achieve the extraordinary. Annie Wood was born in London on the 1st of October 1847, within the sound of the Bow Bells. And yet with three quarters Irish ancestry, she would claim that her heart was all Irish. She was described as being a happy and imaginative child, mystical and religious to the very fingertips, and could frequently be found swathed in a curtain reading a book. And yet at the age of only five, her small family was to be rent apart by the death of her father after a short illness. She graphically recalls being taken to say goodbye and seeing his large eyes and strange voice before being removed crying and struggling from the room. Her mother's hair apparently went white overnight, and more sadness was to follow with the death of Annie's younger brother Alfred a few months later. In order that Annie's elder brother Henry should receive the best possible education, the impoverished family moved to Harrow School, where her mother took in boarders to make ends meet. Annie's childhood in Harrow was happy. She enjoyed playing cricket and climbing with the boys, and was passionately devoted to her mother. A favourite bolt hole was the tombstone known as Byron's Tomb, where the poet himself had once loved to rest, inspired by the magnificent views. She loved to read Byron's poetry and Milton's Paradise Lost from here, and her tendency to declaim Satan's speeches from the hill was an early indication of the rebellion and oratory, which was later to play such an important part in her life. Annie herself was sent to receive a progressive and intensely religious education in Dorset under the inspirational teacher Ellen Marriott. The girls were encouraged to write about what interested them and taught to think for themselves. Annie would later attribute her love of knowledge to Miss Marriott, which she said remained with her always as a constant spur to her study. Having travelled for a time in Europe with Miss Marriott, Annie returned to Harrow and at the age of 18, a zealously religious Annie became friends with a conservative and conventional young cleric named Frank Besant. One day, as he was on the point of getting onto a train, he proposed. Taken aback, Annie couldn't answer immediately. Frank took her silence as acceptance. She knew almost immediately it was a mistake, but felt unable to rectify the misunderstanding. As she said later, out of sheer weakness and fear of inflicting pain, I drifted into an engagement with a man I did not pretend to love. So they married in 1867, and according to Annie, she knew nothing of the nature of marital relations. Frank, who was seven years her senior, apparently shocked and terrified her on the wedding night, 
and it would appear that it set the tone for the rest of their marriage. Despite a cool exterior, Frank was hot-tempered and frustrated with an independent young wife of strong opinions who knew her own mind. As Annie says herself, she was as proud as Lucifer. She was not prepared to be a submissive and dutiful wife. They moved to Sibsey in Lincolnshire where their two children were born. As a young child, their daughter Mabel contracted whooping cough and her suffering was to have a profound effect upon Annie. How, she questioned, could a loving God allow a defenceless child to suffer in this way? Mabel survived, but Annie's faith was shaken. In Sibsey, moved by the conditions of the rural poor nearby, Annie found she had a talent for nursing, and she also started to write short stories to supplement their family income. It was here too that she was to discover a gift that would change her life forever. One day, after practising the organ at church, she decided to climb the pulpit to see how it would feel to preach. She was startled by the eloquence of her delivery. As she declaimed to rows and rows of empty seats, she seemed to find her voice and felt a rush of language that gushes and sways. She knew now that her words had the power to move and she would never preach to empty seats again. At this point, the marriage had completely collapsed. Having lost her Christian faith during Mabel's illness, Annie refused to stay for communion after morning service. Frank gave her an ultimatum. Either take communion or go. So Annie went. Leaving their son Digby with Frank and taking Mabel with her, Annie moved back to London and it was here that she joined a group of free-thinking radicals and became a popular writer and public speaker. She loved to speak, and apparently she was an extraordinary orator who had cast a spell over her audience. The Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw was later to claim what a great actress she was. A leading political activist of the day, Charles Bradlaugh, heard her defending free speech one day in Finsbury and believed her speech was the best he had ever heard by a woman. By all accounts, it was full of passion, drama, rising to ecstasy of power. Bradlaugh himself was hugely charismatic and had recently split acrimoniously from his wife. He became the most important influence on Annie for the next 20 years. He was a great supporter of Irish home rule, which was a cause that Annie took up enthusiastically. He also gave her the confidence to express her loss of faith, and in 1875, Annie became a vociferous atheist, viciously opposed to a Christian God. Her bitter attacks on the Bible were something she claimed later to regret, and her controversial views and at times fanaticism invited frequent violence, and she had to endure kickings from savage detractors, windows shattering around her, and at times would be forced to hastily flee from enraged opponents. She had become loved and loathed in equal measure, and yet for all the hatred and vitriol flung at her, she would not be bowed. As she said herself, I am not what you think me, and your verdict does not change my own self. You cannot make me vile whatever you think of me, and I will never, in my own eyes, be that which you deem me to be now. In 1877, a pamphlet on birth control was republished in England. 
It had first been published in America 40 years earlier by Dr Charles Knowlton, but this new edition was illustrated and seen by some as almost pornographic. Both bookseller and publisher Charles Watts were charged with obscenity. As it happened, Watts was the publisher of Bessent and Bradlaugh's own publication, The National Reformer, and birth control was an issue close to Annie's heart. Britain's population had grown exponentially during the first half of the 19th century, from 11 million in 1801 to 21 million by 1851. She felt strongly that the poor should be given a chance to read it for themselves. Bessent and Bradlaugh republished with a preface that read, We think it more moral to prevent the conception of children than after they are born to murder them by want of food, air and clothing. 500 copies at sixpence each were sold within the first half hour. Within weeks, the two were arrested and faced trial under charges of obscenity. Annie passionately defended herself. I speak as counsel for hundreds of the poor, and it is they for whom I defend this case. My clients are scattered up and down the length and breadth of the land, among the fathers who see their wage ever reducing, amongst mothers worn out through over-frequent childbearing. I find my clients among the little children. She spoke of the appalling conditions in the slums, dominated by ignorance of the facts of life, which led only to crime and greater poverty. The guilty verdict was quashed on a technicality, but sadly for Annie, the trial came at a great personal cost. Frank Besant applied for custody of Mabel on the grounds of her mother's atheism and propaganda for contraception. Annie pleaded her own case which scandalised the judge and she gave a vigorous defence. Though she lost her case, she struck a blow for the rights of wives when she pointed out that if you are legally your husband's wife, you have no legal claim to your children. If you are your husband's mistress, your rights as mother are secure. A wife, unlike a mistress, was regarded as her husband's property. She recalls the desperate scene when Mabel was torn screaming from her and taken away. She had lost both her children. Eventually she emerged from a severe breakdown with the conviction that whilst she could no longer be mother to her own offspring, she would instead be a mother to all helpless children. Thankfully, later in life, Digby and Mabel were to return to Annie and were a great support to her in her work. She now threw herself into furthering her education, enrolling on a science degree only a year after women were admitted to the University of London, and yet she felt impeded by prejudice and she was never awarded her degree. By now, Besant and Bradlaugh were starting to move in different directions, and in May 1884, Annie encountered George Bernard Shaw. Annie and Shaw were to develop an intimate friendship. Marriage was not an option, so when cohabiting was suggested, Annie drew up a lengthy list of terms for the renowned philanderer to sign. The sight of it had him bursting out laughing. Good God, he said, this is worse than all the vows of all the churches on earth. I had rather be legally married to you ten times over. It was at this point that, as Shaw would have put it, Annie bounded into a new movement, socialism attracted by its defence of the underdog and its ideal of universal brotherhood. 
she joined the newly formed Fabian Society, of which Shaw was a leading light, and whose purpose was to explore alternatives to capitalism, and which would later influence the formation of the Labour Party. By 1887, unemployment was a serious issue of the day, and protests were being held in Trafalgar Square. When it was discovered that on Sunday, November 13th, the square was to be closed to protesters, thousands were to sweep to the square to assert their right of assembly. After a meeting held at Clerkenwell Green, where Annie appeared as speaker, the procession made their way to the West End, and 8,000 protesters attempted to enter Trafalgar Square. Troops were on hand to assist the Metropolitan Police. Annie was in the thick of the fighting, which was fierce, with 150 hospitalised and 300 arrested. When Annie offered herself for arrest, the police refused to take the bait. The event became known as Bloody Sunday, and Annie was widely blamed, or perhaps credited for it. In the aftermath, she threw herself into organising a defence fund for the victims, bailing out the accused and caring for those discharged. The following year, Annie attended a socialist meeting in Hampstead where she heard that the Bryant and May match factory had announced enormous profits, whilst the workers themselves, mostly women, were suffering terrible conditions and poor wages. Most concerning of all was the amount of workers suffering ill effects of the white phosphorus used in the matches, extreme effects of which could cause a condition known as fossy jaw a type of cancer which caused the jaw to rot and which, unless the jaw was removed, often led to an agonising death. Annie published an article in her socialist newspaper The Link entitled White Slavery in London, in which she condemned the misery of the women, and when Bryant and Maeve tried to force the women to sign a statement to confirm they were happy with conditions, it led to 1,400 female workers of the factory walking out on strike. Annie supported the women through the three-week strike and eventually Bryant and May agreed to meet with the strike committee. Concessions were made and paying conditions improved. Despite this, white phosphorus continued to be used at the factory for another ten years and Annie continued to campaign for its removal. In 1906, it was outlawed altogether. Whilst women could not at this time stand for Parliament, they were able to play a role in local elections and the following year Annie stood for the newly created London School Board, proclaiming no more hungry children. She topped the poll in Tower Hamlets with 15,000 votes and declared, Ten years ago, under a cruel law, Christian bigotry robbed me of my little child. Now the care of the 763,680 children of London is placed partly in my hands. She also played an important part in supporting the dock workers in their fight for better wages. She helped set up their union, spoke for them at public meetings and on street corners, and after a strike which garnered huge public support, they eventually won better wages and working conditions. Annie was a prolific writer, and in 1889 she was asked to review a book, The Secret Doctrine, by Madame Blavatsky. It was to change the course of her life. For some time she'd been searching for the spiritual, some hidden thing, some hidden power. And in this book, she felt she had seen the light. She soon met with the author and straightway bounded into theosophy, 
a religious movement founded in 1875 and based on Hindu ideas of karma and reincarnation. Annie severed her links with socialism and threw herself in. She would later describe her transition from socialist to theosophist as like travelling through storm into peace. Madame Blavatsky moved to Annie's home for a time, but after she died, Annie moved to India, which she believed to be her true spiritual home. In 1907, she became president of the Theosophical Society. She worked for social reform, women's rights and promoted female education in India. She founded numerous schools, including a Hindu school in Benares, attended by future Prime Minister Nehru, and the Benares Hindu University, which later awarded her an honorary doctorate. And when the Great War broke out in 1914, she helped launch the Home Rule League, campaigning for democracy in India. She organised a number of large, peaceful demonstrations in favour of Indian home rule, before, at the age of 70, being finally arrested. Held in such high regard, protests were threatened across India, and eventually the colonial government was forced to release her to cheering crowds. She was elected first woman president of the Indian National Congress and in later years both Gandhi and Nehru would speak of their admiration for her. The Theosophists believed that one day a wise and visionary spiritual leader would emerge who would unite all the major religions of the world, and in 1909 they felt they had found such a figure in a young boy, Jiddu Krishnamurti. In 1910, Annie adopted Krishnamurti with the consent of his father though it would appear that there was later controversy surrounding the adoption. He was groomed for a role that he would later reject, but despite this it can only be imagined how much it meant to Annie to be a mother again, and the two were always to remain close. Annie Besant died on the 20th of September 1933 in Madras, and her body was cremated in the traditional Hindu style. She was undoubtedly a complex woman who led an extraordinary life, in which at every turn she sought to find the truth and to serve others. She was the champion of women, children, the poor and the disadvantaged, supporter of home rule for both Ireland and later for her adopted spiritual home, India. In reading her autobiography, I was struck by her humanity and self-knowledge, the ability to reflect, to admit her weaknesses and her utter conviction in what she believed to be right. So many had Annie to thank for championing their cause. She was a force for change and her influence was far-reaching. If I had been alive 150 years ago, I can say without hesitation that I would have wanted Annie Besant on my side. She dealt with hatred, outrage and public vilification. She endured a destructive relationship and the unimaginable loss of her children and yet she found the courage time after time to challenge the status quo and keep the unfaltering belief that only through action, by standing up and making yourself heard, can you change things for the better. Thank you for listening to the Women Inspire podcast. If you'd like to know more about Annie Besson, please see the show notes on the podcast page of our website, womeninspire.co.uk. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends. And if you could leave a review, that would be amazing. Join me next time to hear the incredible story of a peace-loving young woman 
who displayed unimaginable courage and resilience as a secret agent during World War II. In the meantime, all the best until then.